Hi, how are you doing? I'm sitting in my garden in the warm sunshine, listening to the gentle tinkling of my neighbour's wind chimes and a wood pigeon, a distant blackbird and a green finch somewhere. But most of all, I'm listening for swifts. My name's Melissa Harrison, and I'm a nature writer and novelist. I'm lucky enough to live in rural Suffolk, and I can walk out of my cottage into woods and fields without passing another human being, although this week I'm staying at home. From now, through spring and summer, and into autumn, I'll be helping you keep in touch with the natural world and the changing seasons. Welcome to episode six of The Stubborn Light of Things. in this country in the first week of May and they time their arrival so that it coincides with the period in which they're the most flying insects for them to eat. There's some leeway in those dates of course and this year they were particularly early and Kate Bradbury who was a guest on an earlier episode saw them on April the 22nd. I know from lots of people that they are back And I also know from one of my neighbours that they've been seen in the village, but I haven't seen them yet. And the reason we're not going for a walk in this episode is that I want to see them over my own garden. That's when I know they're really here. As I'm sure you know by now, I've been writing a monthly nature notebook in the Times for some years and in November my columns are going to be collected together and published by Faber as the stubborn light of things. In this piece from 2016 I've just welcomed Swifts back to South London where I was still living at the time. As for the daisies I mentioned I've just taken delivery of 24 from a very nice man on eBay and I've planted them on the verge outside my cottage. The Times Nature Notebook, May 2016. Its name derives from Old English diesa oya and means day's eye, for the way it opens its petals at sunrise and closes them at dusk, and May is a good month in which to reacquaint oneself with the humblest of all our native wildflowers. Daisies star the spring grass of London's parks and verges, their low rosettes of leaves safe from mowers and adapted to survive the passage of feet. Traditional gardeners, who hanker over a perfect sward, 
often curse both daisies and dandelions, from dent de lion, meaning lion's teeth, for their toothed leaves. But these days, more and more people recognise their value to pollinating insects and enjoy, too, their innocent and somehow nostalgic beauty. For these are probably the flowers most familiar from childhood, when we all spent more time in closer contact with the grass, pushing a thumbnail through a daisy stem to make what the poet Alice Oswald calls a lovely necklace out of her green bones, blowing a dandelion clock to tell the time, or watching the bitter white latex ooze from their hollow stems. It makes people wet the bed, my brother would say gleefully. And indeed, dandelion leaves are a diuretic and a key ingredient in the traditional French dish pissenlit au lard. We disregard them as adults for their ubiquity, but writers and artists from Chaucer to Shakespeare, Dürer to William Morris and John Clare to Laurie Lee have loved the lawn weeds for their simple and unpretentious beauty. On Thursday I saw my first swifts of the year, carving across London skies like little black scimitars and trailing summer in their wake. I usually spot them a little later than my friends further east or near the coasts, and the day they finally reach me is a highlight of my year. Swifts cope a little better with cities than house martins or swallows, as they can fly higher to avoid pollution. Nevertheless, numbers are falling here and elsewhere. I know of two buildings near me where they breed, and both have had work done during the last year. I'll be devastated if this year they cannot nest at either site. The sound of their screams when I'm gardening spells out summer, and few things are more joyful than their aerial dogfights, swooping almost to street level at breathtaking speed and chasing another pell-mell through the stagnant city air. It amazes me that swifts can eat, sleep and mate on the wing, so that come August, this year's chicks will launch themselves into a world made only of air, racing away from London to sub-Saharan Africa and not touching down again for one, two or even three whole years. I should perhaps tell you a little bit about my garden. I'm sure you're imagining something very bucolic, suitable for a nature writer. Well, I'm currently sitting at a table and chairs on my terrace. My terrace is the concrete lid of a septic tank. My garden's very, very narrow. There are five manhole covers and then a narrow path to what used to be a brick privy and is now a shed beyond which I'd love to tell you is a babbling brook it's actually a ditch that takes water off the fields when it's rained a lot but is dry for most of the time Swallows and house martins have all evolved alongside humans and they need our buildings and dwellings to nest. But recently we've begun building them in such a way that they can't. We block up all the holes and gaps. We use plastic soffits and fascias which mud can't adhere to. 
I had a swift colony very close to me when I lived in London and they were getting in through air bricks in the front of the building and then the developers came and blocked them all up. That's how we lose things little by little by little because they're very, very sight faithful, these birds. They will come back to the same spot if they can. And right now that feels very precious. It feels like loyalty. And with so many of us staying at home at the moment, something that comes to us, that's important. So here I am, looking up, and not seeing anything yet. This week's poem is Roses by Kathleen Jamie. Her 2005 book, Findings, was the first modern work of nature writing I ever read. And she was and is a complete beacon to me, which is why I'm incredibly proud that she's going to be a guest on next week's episode. Roses is read for us today by Josie George, who we'll hear more from later in the episode. She chose it because she says it captures the subversive kind of power that comes from being willing to be right where you are, unapologetic and unashamed. It's a good reminder when we feel powerless. Roses by Kathleen Jamie This is the moment the roses cascade over backstreet walls throng the public parks their cream or scrunched pinks unfolding now to demonstrate unacknowledged thought the world is ours too they brave careless of tomorrow and wholly without leadership for who'd mount a soapbox on the rose behalf I haggle for my little portion of happiness says each flower, equal in the scented mass. For nearly two months now, we've all been living very still, small lives. And for most of us, that's been a big change. I think busyness and travel and novelty are addictive and coming off them is like coming off a drug. There's a period at first of intense frustration and irritability. But when that passes, there's an opportunity, if we want to take it, to come into a new relationship with ourselves and our lives and the people we love, and the places where we live. Lots of people have been rediscovering childhood hobbies, have been going out for walks in their local area and finding amazing little parks and treasures they didn't know were there, and making room in their days for new rituals and new moments. When the lockdown is lifted... We're all going to have a choice. 
about how much of this current stillness we choose to take forward into whatever is to come. And for me, I want to take a lot. But it's worth thinking now about what that will actually look like and how we might make room. The Suffolk farmer and writer Adrian Bell did exactly that back in the 1930s. He's been a huge influence on my writing and it was his farming trilogy, uh, Cordroy, Silverlay and the Cherry Tree, that, um, that lay behind my last book, All Along the Barley. In the 1930s, uh, he had a little car, a little motor car, and it broke down, the axle broke. And so he and his wife spent several weeks of quite enforced stillness where they couldn't go around much. And they just um, went out and about in a little pony and trap, which didn't get them very far or very fast. But he decided that he liked it. He wrote, one's radius both contracts and expands. That is to say, while the circumference of miles at one's disposal is halved, their content is more than doubled. For quiet pace is like a magnifying glass. Regions one has passed over as familiar suddenly enlarge with innumerable new details and become a feast of contemplation. To people who said, yes, but one loses such a lot of time getting from place to place, we answered, how could that time be lost, which was enjoyed? When they find out from a motor mechanic that the car can be repaired at the cost of £12, they decide not to and to carry on as they are. In the garden. Five. There they are. The globe's still working, the creation's still waking, refreshed. Our summer's still all to come, as Ted Hughes said. They're here. My swifts are here. really determined cheeping you can hear happens every afternoon for at least an hour in my garden and it's a male sparrow sitting in the hedge proclaiming his territory In this week's set of diary entries from the parson naturalist Gilbert White, you'll hear another mention of Timothy the tortoise. And you might be starting to feel the first stirrings of affection for Timothy, as I think everyone does who reads Gilbert's diaries and his book. Timothy uh, originally belonged to Mr and Mrs Snook, 
uh, Gilbert's aunt and uncle. And he was purchased by Mr. Snook in 1740 from a sailor in Chichester. And when his aunt died in 1780, um, Gilbert inherited the tortoise. And when he went to fetch Timothy, uh, Timothy was hibernating. And Gilbert records digging him up. Um, and he writes uh, that he was enough awakened to express his resentments by hissing. Gilbert's life sort of mirrored Timothy's in a strange way, very constrained, very local, uh, but with its own small excitements. And Timothy didn't outlive um, Gilbert White by very long. Gilbert died in 1793 and um, Timothy died sometime during that winter's hibernation. After his death, it was found that Timothy had been a girl all along, something Gilbert never realised. There's a fantastic book if you want to enter into the imaginative world of Timothy a little more, called Timothy's book, Notes of an English Country Tortoise, by Verlin Klinkenborg. And it's fiction, obviously, but it... Um, it imagines Timothy as a bit of a Gilbert White character himself, philosophical, sardonic, and observing all of the frailties and failings of the strange human race. May the 7th, 1780. Tortoise moves about, but does not feed yet. May the 11th, 1781. Fern owl chatters. When this bird is heard, summer is usually established. May the 11th, 1782. One of my neighbours, an intelligent and observing man, informs me about 10 minutes before 8 o'clock in the evening he discovered a great cluster of house swallows, 30 at least he supposes, perching on a willow that hung over the verge of James Knight's upper pond. His attention was first drawn by the twittering of these birds, which sat motionless in a row on the bough, with their heads all one way, and by their weight pressing down the twig so it nearly touched the water. In this situation he watched them till he could see no longer. Repeated accounts of this sort, spring and fall, induce us greatly to suspect swallows have some strong attachment to water independent of the matter of food and that if they do not retire into that element they conceal themselves in the banks of pools and rivers during the uncomfortable months of winter. May the 11th 1785 severe drying exhausting drought cloudless days the country all dust Timothy the tortoise weighs six pounds, 11 and three quarter ounces. He spoils the lettuce under the fruit wall, but will not touch the Dutch while he can get any cos. May the 11th, 1788. In some districts, chafers swarm. I see none at Selborne. Cotton blows from the willows and fills the air. With this substance, some birds line their nests. Mr. Burby's brown owl, which was a great washer, was drowned at last in a tub 
where there was too much water. Earlier on in the episode, you heard Kathleen Jamie's poem, Roses, read by Josie George. And Josie is my guest on this week's episode. Josie and I have been friends on Twitter for many years now, where she goes by the name Porridge Brain. And she is one of Twitter's wisest and kindest presences. She's an absolute joy to follow. She's someone who is relentlessly creative. And the whole time I've known her, she's been involved in innumerable little projects, all of which have been very outward-facing. She's somebody who wants to bring joy and connection to other people. The fact that we now share a literary agent is something that makes me smile every time I think of it. And her memoir, A Still Life, will be published at the end of February next year by Bloomsbury. Here's JC from Stafford. If you open my bathroom window and stick your head out, you can look out over the back of our terrace and down into our yards, all squashed together in a row. Back in the 1880s, when this place was built for local factory workers, they left each house just enough space for your outside loo and to let you peg your washing out. Look out now and you'll see grubby, drunken patio furniture and play equipment in yellows and pinks bleached by the sun. The odd patch of squeezed-in grass is threadbare and there are no hedges or trees, so the pigeons and sparrows who live here sit on the old TV aerials and make their nests in the gutters or the old chimney pots. Living here, it can be easy to think that proper nature is for other people, especially now when we're all stuck where we are with what we've got. Luckily, I've had quite a lot of practice at being stuck. I've been physically disabled since I was a little girl, and before the lockdown, I needed either a mobility scooter or a wheelchair and a carer to help get me out, and I'd soon have to come home again. I'm a writer, and sometimes people have called me a nature writer, but a part of me always prickles when they say that. All the nature writing I read is about walking, so how could that be me? I can barely make it to the bottom of my own yard. And yet, I do write about nature all the time. I can't help it because I'm lonely. And that makes me want to touch the things around me. When I do, they talk back. And then I'm not lonely anymore. Like anyone in a relationship, I find I want to talk about it. See, I want to tell you about the blackbird who's singing in the alley where the bins are kept and about the little raised beds I had built and filled with flowers, how they die sometimes, or grow monstrous. I want to tell you about the bees that visit, and the strange holes they nibble. Next to me, the roses and honeysuckle that grow up the old loo are about to flower. I have twelve fat peony buds under the washing line, I'm proud to announce, and I've brought the tomato seedlings I grew on the windowsill out with me to harden off. In a few weeks, I'll be able to sit here and pop them sweet into my mouth. I think that picking and choosing what nature we connect with can be a bit like being back at school, coveting the friendships of the popular gang while ignoring the shy kid 
who hangs off our every word. I think it's a type of snobbery, and it's meaningless. There's no best bird, best flower, best view in nature. Those are stupid human concepts. There's no best person either, so I don't need to worry about being special here. I'd love for there to be more conversations about accessibility in nature and about the diversity of our nature stories, but I think it can start now with a kind of tenacious daring to say to the scruffier bits of nature, come and sit by me, and then to relish its ordinary, beautiful company. See, I'm not stuck at all. I'm simply kindly sitting still.